Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kimberly Mack, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ben Blackwell about his book, The Blue Series, The Story Behind the Color. Ben Blackwell, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kim. Ben, I wonder if you would begin the interview by telling me a bit about yourself and Third Man Records. Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, Went to the mediocrest of private schools, and uh, my teenage years discovered a love for music. That, uh, from performing to collecting to writing about, kind of encompassed all of that. Uh, Third Man started in Nashville in 2009. Originally, the idea was it was going to be a record label that was just going to reissue. Uh, the back catalog by Jack White's band, The White Stripes. Jack White is the owner, the sole proprietor of Third Man Records. Um, and so I came down here to help make that happen. I'd worked for The White Stripes for a long time. I had run my own record label, Cass Records, um, out of my bedroom in Detroit. Uh, so bringing those two things together was a uh, was imperative to the the start of Third Man Records here. And uh, that was nine years ago now, and we're at, we've released over 500 different titles. We've pressed over 4 million pieces of vinyl, um, been strongly uh, at the forefront of the quote-unquote, I hate to even use the term, vinyl revival. Um, But that has been, uh, that has been my life. Music and vinyl records specifically is, is, they are, constantly filtering through my brain. Um, Why don't we just start at the beginning? Can you just tell me a little bit about what this book is about and how you came to edit it? Yeah. So we have a series here of recordings that we do at Third Man called the Blue Series. Uh, They are single artist, two song uh, singles that um, are produced by Jack White in his home studio and it's usually the, – the original idea behind it all was meant to be quick. It was meant to be not too much thought placed onto it. It was meant to be something that could work with artists that were on tour, artists that were possibly signed to larger record labels, um, and just be a snapshot, be ephemeral. Um, the, t- the, s- the title of the series, the, the blue series comes from, uh, we have a room here in our offices that has, uh, psych walls, uh, walls for doing photo shoots and video shoots that is painted, uh, a nice rich, uh, blue color. And so all the photos for these singles, uh, the cover art, uh, is a portrait of the artist in front of this blue wall. So they have a unifying look across nine years now where you could see one from across the room and know, oh, that's part of the Blue Series. Um, So we have the Blue Series. It's been going on at this point for nine years. But when we started the book, I think it was seven and a half years we'd been running it. And uh, Jack came to me and said, I think we need to do a book about the Blue Series and we need to talk to the artists that participated. We need to talk to all the different session musicians who've played on it. Uh, the different photographers that have taken the photos. Um, and, uh, he said, I, I, I want to be able to, uh, you know, get you your first book. This is the first thing that I've ever been, uh, kind of helming in the publishing world in terms of an actual print book. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the impetus. That's the starting point. And can you can you say a little bit more about the the seven inch the process of putting those together? You said they're meant to be quick, um, ephemeral. Um, what can you just say a little bit more about actually what those recordings were like? 
Yeah, so a seven inch in, in, in modern times, a seven inch forty five RPM record is is an anomaly. It doesn't really carry that much cachet or importance. It's almost like a baseball card or uh, you know, the prize at the bottom of a cracker jack box. It's kind of almost an extra in a lot of situations. Um, but that kind of, we use, we use that as the advantage in regards to when you're asking an artist to do a seven inch single, you can record one in a day. You don't have to do your best new hit song, something that you think is going to be hugely successful. You can put out a seven inch. If it does, if it does awesome, great. If it doesn't sell anything, the excuse is, well, it's just a seven inch. What did we expect we were going to do? Um, and that gives us the opportunity to work with larger artists too. So if we were talking to an artist like Beck, who we did a blue series single with, if we said, Hey, why don't you do a new album on third band? There's no way that would ever happen. There's no way anyone would in his camp, his record label would sign off on that. It's just not good business, but a seven inch, you can very easily make the argument, persuade the folks that this is just promotion. This just ties you over to the next thing you do that will give people something to talk about. Is the Blue Series ongoing? Is it still happening? Yeah, it's definitely ongoing. It's uh, It kind of ebbs and flows in regards to Jack. Uh, Jack as the producer, um, what else is going on in his uh, creative professional world? So, you know, pretty much the entirety of this year right now, 2018, he has been um, touring and promoting his latest album. So we haven't recorded any, uh, you know, this year. Uh, but it's all, it, it comes up, you know, at least once a month suggesting, trying to think of someone for a blue series single. Um, so it's, it's always, it's always on the table, let's, let's say. Well, well, based on the interviews, it, it's clear that Third Man found artists for the Blue Series in multiple ways and really different ways. Are you still looking then actively for artists to participate and have you changed the way that you find them? We're always looking for everything. I don't think any doors ever close here. Um, that's our job to, to have an antenna up, to be paying attention to what's on the radar. Um, but it's also not ever viewed in an assignment capacity. It's not like we need a blue series this year, go find someone. It is more often the case of, man, we want to work with this person. They might be on tour for the next six months. All right, well, let's do it in six months. Uh, it's kind of just catch as catch can. We've got some artists that, you know, for, for sake of not wanting to jinx anything, I don't even want to mention names, but artists that we've been trying to work on that both us and the artist want to do, uh, recording for the blue series, uh, going back seven years now. Uh, and it just hasn't made sense. It, we, the, the schedules haven't lined up. Uh, the material wasn't ready or there or whatever. And, and I'm fine with that. I am nothing if not patient. Are there plans for a second volume? Uh, yes. Uh, it will probably take given, given <laughs> the, the scale with which Jack's other endeavors have ramped up. Um, I think it will take a lot longer to get to, uh, was it 40 singles that we wrote about in the book? It was 40 or 50? Yeah, um, something like that. So, yeah, it'll, ta- it'll take considerably longer. But, yeah, that was the idea that this, this the book could be um, serialized. You know, there could be a volume two, there could be a volume three, depending on, uh, you know, how many, uh, how long it takes to get there. So let's let's go back a little. So how long did it take you to put the book together? What was the process like? So we had a meeting here at Third Man with Jack sometime probably in the middle of 2016. And he had the, you know, he kind of laid out what he thought, you know, the idea for the book, a book about the Blue Series. That That's kind of the... the main guidance from him. There should be a book about the blue series and, you know, Ben Blackwell, you should be the one to write it. Okay. Um, it took me a minute to really wrap my head around how I wanted to attack that, how I wanted to approach people, how I wanted to interact with them, to speak with them. And, uh, I didn't, 
having never done this before, I kind of just went at it like I've done any other creative endeavors in my life, whether it's a record label or whether it's uh, recording music or being a performer. I just totally DIY, just do it myself. You know, we have a books department here at Third Man, um, but I didn't really think so much to engage them, to engage that team. So I started by compiling uh, a, a manageable, a, a customizable questionnaire to send out to uh, the different artists who'd been involved in the in Blue Series singles um, and compiling their email addresses. And some of them were people we hadn't been in touch with in, in a while. Um, you know, you just lose touch with people, no, no ill will or anything like that. And, uh, and it was slow going. It was frustrating. I didn't think a book was there, uh, really early on. It felt like, man, it doesn't seem like anyone wants to do this. I don't, I'm not happy with it. And just kind of struggling with how to make that work. And so I don't know how many people had actually written back uh, in response to these questionnaires. But I got a, the, the ideal moment or the, the, the kind of breakthrough moment for me became uh, reaching out to the performer Chris Thiele. Um, we did a single with him and a, a, another performer named Michael Daves. And uh, mm-hmm. Chris Thiele, obviously, he's – this is before he had taken over Prairie Home Companion and had become eh, a quasi household name. Thiele also won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Like he's very, very well, mm-hmm. uh, well renowned. Um, but reaching out to him, I said, "Hey, I want, you know, this book is coming. I want to do an interview with you." Uh, you know, sent him along the questionnaire, and he just very politely said, "Hey, man, I can answer the questionnaire fine, but I'd really prefer to just talk on the phone." And I thought okay, how do I do, how am I going to do this? Um, I had not, you know, interviewed someone and recorded it uh, probably for about 10 years in regards to, uh, you know, my, my previous dalliances in the journalism world. Uh, so I basically, in the, in the desk I'm sitting and talking to you right now, I called him on my landline and opened up a um, – Garage band, just basic, uh, basic track garage band where Chris is talking on speakerphone and I'm speaking using the, uh, you know, with the internal built in mic on my desktop computer. And we talked for whatever it was, 40 minutes. And it was revelatory. It was engaging. I was able to follow tangents and, and pursue subject matter or ideas or, that was just wasn't going to happen on any number of back and forth via writing on email, you know? So I, uh, that was really, really the changing point for me, which was, okay, forget the questionnaire altogether. The questionnaire is, is, is holding me back. Now that I know speaking with someone over the phone can get such personally rewarding results. I need to, I, I just need to do that. So I doubled back. I reached out to everyone else to say, Hey, let's talk. Um, some, some people we got what we needed via the questionnaires or some people preferred that they didn't think that they had anything to talk, but moving forward from there, I was able to, you know, maybe like once a week, tw- uh, every other week or so knock out an interview on the phone. And every single one of those interviews was, um, it felt worth it. I never got off the phone with someone and thought, God, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. Everything felt like, you know, this makes sense. And, and, you know, whatever that number is, 40 artists or so, give or take. Um, yeah, that was my, that was my, what I'm shooting for. I'm shooting to, to get all 40 of these people to talk, to speak about the interview. Um, I didn't get it. Um, and I, I, you know, at one point I thought I was going to be stuck with like 20 and I'm fearful because that's not a, that's not a book about the series. You know, I can't fudge that, but just doubled down. I I was fortunate that during the time with which 
the crunch time of this book was while I was on paternity leave. So I was able to actually double down and focus exclusively on knocking out recordings and making that happen without, uh, you know, without affecting my regular work day because I didn't have a regular work day. I was out, you know, it was a three month leave. So that was very fortunate that, that those two timed together. Um, and I think ultimately I got interviews from 33 or 34 of the, of the artists of the performers. And, you know, a couple off the top of my head, I can think just no response, tried to get a hold of them four or five different ways and no, not even a, Hey, I don't even want to talk about it. Just, uh, you know, just totally blanked. So those ones, I didn't feel too bad, man. I made, I did, I went beyond due diligence. That's like, uh, there's a single we did by a band called transit, which is make up made up of workers from the Nashville, uh, public bus transport, uh, Metro transit authority and tried emailing the guy tried, went through, Facebook trying to get a hold of him. Uh, I think we even did a, a written letter to him. Nothing, no response. Okay, I tried that. Um, a couple other Gibby Haynes uh, used to be lead singer of the Butthole Surfers. Um, multiple different methods trying to get a hold of him, and just ultimately never, never got a hold. Never heard anything. So you know, you kind of just you move on. It was uh, much in the DIY spirit, much in the way that I would do, you know, write an article or work on a zine or something. There's a, uh, it's just the approach of, all right, I don't have time to, to waste or worry about that. I got to move on to the next thing. I noticed there's a, there's an insert for the Beck interview yeah. that seemed to have come after the fact. Were there other interviews that came in after the fact, but maybe you couldn't include them for time? Oh, the Beck one was so hilarious. I never thought that he would do it. You know, Beck is ar- arguably one of the biggest um, folks that we've had in the Blue Series. So in my in my mind, it was, yeah, he's he's not going to waste his time with this. You know, I'm small potatoes. This is Beck. Um, so I sent – that was one where it was, a, it was more of a the questionnaire style. And he – uh, I bugged his, I went through via his manager who he and I have a good relationship and he's, uh, he went to U of M. So we usually bond over, um, talking about Zingerman sandwiches. <laughs> um, but, uh, I kept on bugging him, bugging him. And he just said, Hey man, I can't, I, I'm not going to make him do this. Like, um, if he does it, he does it. If not, you know, that's just how it goes. I'm like, I understand. It's the same way with when people ask of something of Jack, white here like i can't force him to do anything I, all i can do is kind of present it to him and then i think it was maybe nine days before the book was set to come out um beck's manager emailed me and said hey sorry uh beck just sent this to me and said it was in his drafts folder it'd been sitting there for a long time and it was his <laughs> answer to all the questions <laughs> wow and so on one level i'm extremely extremely excited because Beck, we we've got Beck talking about this this blue series and talking about his recording experience. Um, on the other hand, the book is already printed. Uh, there's no way to to change that. There's no reprinting it, anything like that. So again, it's just going at DIY punk style. Okay, how would we do this? Well, we could just print an insert, and we could you know what we could just print it here in our office. We don't even need to get uh, a proper crazy fancy printing done of it. We could do it on our Xerox machine. So I think that's what we did. It's, it's not terribly flashy or anything. It's printed on yellow paper. And the coolest thing about Beck was, you know, in that questionnaire, I kind of, my final reach out to folks was like, Hey, anything you want to say about, uh, about the recording session, your experience in Nashville or Jack or whatever you want, feel free to just let loose here and I said, you know, if you know, if you want to write a haiku, write a haiku. Um, and I'll be damned if Beck didn't write a haiku. The only person that wrote a, I wasn't, I wasn't specifically searching for a haiku, but he uh, he took that inspiration and he ran with it. Okay, great. So, were there was there anything else that you would do differently next time if you were to do this project all over again? Yeah, if I did volume two, 
uh, or if I went backwards, I, I would, you know, the, the, the part that I, I deserve, I, I really need to make clear about the, of speaking with people and the, the phone aspect of the interview was, um, I recorded it and was, was put off, uh, and discouraged by the thought of having to transcribe it. Um, it'd been a long time since I'd transcribed. I'm still a pretty solid typist. Um, but just the idea of having to listen back to a 40 minute, listen to like a 40 minute interview, it'd probably take me, you know, hour and a half minimum, if not two hours to transcribe that, that became scary to me. And this is the point where it's like talking to Chet Wisey, who, who's the, the third man books editor, the editor of the, of the imprint. Um, he said, well, we've got, you know, his assistant, Kim, uh, Kim Baugh. He said, Kim will transcribe them. And I said, what? So well, that's, that's what we've got like Kim here for you. You just record it, send it to her. She'll transcribe it, send it along to you. You can read through it, make sure everything makes sense. Uh, and we'll just go through that for all the interviews moving forward. And I have to tell you, it was life-changing to be able to do that, to not – I come from the mindset of you have to do everything yourself, not out of not out of pride, out of I don't trust anyone to do it yourself, but out of a sense of necessity of that there is no one to do it yourself, no one else to help you. Uh, that's how I started my record label. That's how I've done anything. I'm writing stuff and – People aren't publishing it. That's why I started a blog. I don't need anyone to publish it. So to have that asset uh, of Kim knocking out those transcriptions, um, that literally, you know, in combination with the speaking with Chris Thiele, that interview, um, and Kim transcribing it, that was uh, totally opened my mind up. So I, I would, I would have had that revelation sooner. And, uh, I probably wouldn't have even futzed with having a, a questionnaire. Um, even though there's certain people who, who weren't comfortable speaking, uh, and, and preferred it, I would have just pushed them harder. Um, but it's also, you know, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's my first book. Uh, so it was definitely, it was a process learning that, um, I'm happy to have learned that. Did you conduct your interview with Jack White before you interviewed the artists and session players or after? And if before, did his perspective inform your approach to the interviews? If I call, if I recall correctly, Jack was one of the last interviews I did. We did it sitting here in my office, same way recorded on the garage band on my desktop. And, um, I maybe did like two or three interviews after speaking to him, but the bulk of them had already been done. So I was able to um, take moments and take recollections from artists and performers and kind of present them to him uh, and get his impression on it. And uh, his interview was much longer. We edited it down because I would, I, I would just bring up uh, any, any, record that I thought, Oh man, I'd love to know more about like the, the artist didn't talk too much. The artist didn't have too much to say a record or or I couldn't get a hold of the artist. I would love to know more about transit uh, because there's no, there's no artist voice there. So I want specifically I'm seeking out Jack's voice there. If I've got something where the artist said a ton and gave me beautiful, great flowery material, I'm less concerned about what Jack has to say with that. Um, so that it, it definitely did inform uh, my approach in speaking with him. And it's great. You know what? I am so lucky that I've, I have been able to interview Jack however many times I have. I guess at this point it's probably like six or seven times across multiple different formats or whatever in, in my, if you want to call this a career, if you want to call this misguided uh, life spent, whatever I'm doing here. <laughs> um, but I, we can call it a career. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> but but you know we're family. Jack is my uncle, so there there's there's a connection there. But there's also just a rapport of I know how he thinks, and I, I think I get a 
I have a little bit better insight than an average interviewer in how to phrase a question to him or how to present it to, uh, you know, let's be perfectly honest, to get the answer I want. Um, you know, uh, that is, you know, it's, it's almost tying in with, uh, the advice they always give lawyers, which is don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Um, I oftentimes will know the answer and he may have forgotten it. So I can, I can try to lead the horse to water. I can try to get him to say what I know the story is. No one wants to hear me tell the story. Um, but he may have forgotten. Uh, I serve, uh, I serve fairly well as the, um, unofficial memory of third man records of remembering what had happened. Uh, and that's, I'm, I'm happy with that. So it was towards the end of the other interviews when you interviewed him. So after interviewing him, did it affect the last few you did? I don't think so. Um, I don't think he had anything to say that made me, uh, approach any, anyone differently. Um, he, he was just able, you know, the, 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 as the blue series is his idea, you know, that input and that perspective was extremely important and foundational in the book. Um, but it wasn't, it was my, I think the greatest value he brought was the artists who, who, who did not or could not speak, um, providing whatever little nuggets or whatever little tidbits about those recordings. Um, you know, there was one, there's oh, kind of a, I don't know if it's an outlier or just a sticks out kind of weirdly. They're all in their own sense, weird records, but um, this band called Drakar Sauna, who I think is from Kansas, if I remember correctly. And they, uh, I don't know if we said this or not in the book, um, but I do know at some point uh, Jack mentioned, yeah, those guys just sent copies of their releases to Third Man, and Jack found them. I don't know if it was addressed to him or what. He found them and like, oh wow, these guys are cool. I want to do a Blue Series single with them. Um, now at the time when that happened, in I think it was 2009 or 2010, uh, we didn't want to tell anyone that because we didn't want to get inundated with demos mm-hmm. and people like, oh, the, those guys sent their stuff in and they got a record out. Uh, I think now, uh, you know, eight or nine years later, we're, we're, we're in the clear. Um, but things like that, that's interesting. That's insightful. That's, that's, you know, it's not the main course, but it's the spice. It's the appetizer to it all, you know. In the Smoke Fairies interview, Jessica Davies said, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, that the Blue series mm-hmm. is a valuable snapshot of what's happening across all genres during this generation. Given your role as the official White Stripes archivist, can you speak to Davies' comment um, as well as maybe more broadly about the importance of documenting and archiving work like this? Well, I I might argue the idea of of documenting and say that it's actually more – this isn't material that exists outside of our world. We are actually creating – we are – summoning this work at third man. So it's not like this single was recorded by the smoke fairies and they sent it to us and we put it out. That to me would be documenting. Um, We said smoke fairies come to Nashville. We want to record you and we want to put it out. I think that's a little bit different. I might be getting pedantic, but I think it's slightly off the description of, of documenting. Documenting to me means uh, you're, you're taking a snapshot, you're taking a picture or uh, a recording of something that's already exists, that's going to exist regardless whether you are there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I don't feel that this is, is, is documenting. Now, in terms of the Blue Series, now in terms of the book, that is definitely documenting. So to go back and speak with these people, and maybe that's the point you got to, and I was just full yeah. of myself. But 
but um, but yeah, absolutely. To talk with these people and document, okay, this was a moment in time you came and recorded this single. Um, what was that like? That is absolutely documenting. And uh, we live in an age of over-documentation, I think, of, of every aspect of – just about every aspect of culture. And so why is this important? Why is this uh, – why should anyone pay attention? Uh, I'm probably more of the mindset that it will only seem more apparent as time further passes, that in the moment, it's very, very hard to place an importance on something. It's very, very hard to, to find relevance behind um, why is it Im- – what's the relevance of The Smoke Fairies doing a single? What's the relevance of Stephen Colbert doing a record for Third Man Records? What does it mean? Um, that's why I think it was helpful to be looking backwards and not – trying to write this book as every single was recorded, which I could have done and which I'm half considering in regards to the blue series records that have come out, uh, since the book came out. Um, I'm half considering just talking to those people now and interviewing them, uh, rather than waiting another 10 years for, for volume two. Uh, if that makes any sense. That does. Yeah. That does. Um, and it does make you wonder how different those interviews would be because things would be much more fresh. Um, yeah. But yeah, that question of documenting, you know, how important is it to archive these singles? Um, and, you know, how important is it that the artists can look back on this and that other people, generations can look back on this and see what happened? Yeah. I think, you know, None of these singles are insanely high sellers. None of them are, have ever been on a chart of any kind. Um, but I think, you know, there's a, there's a compelling notion to, to be made about music that is uh, not necessarily on the fringes, but is not, you know, is not widely lauded. Um, I think it's the idea that someday someone could be in a record store and find an old used copy of that Laura Marling single we put out. And she covers Bert, uh, no, not Bert Chan. She covers Jackson C. Frank's uh, song, uh, Blues Run the Game. And someone might discover that and they might discover Jackson C. Frank through that. And that might inspire them to play acoustic fingerpick guitar. And that could be the next, uh, great that could be the next voice of a generation um in some regards it doesn't matter how how that person gets there but as someone on the label side as someone who has been in a band as someone who has written about music forever you like knowing that you are leaving it is my work i consider to be hansel and gretling on for future culture which is if someone grabs a song that i wrote or an article that I published, or uh, a single that I released through Third Man, and gets that, and that brings them further along their path. That's that's the point. That's why we're doing this. You want to further propagate culture and art and people's appreciation and connection to it. This book is really best paired with the music. Is there a companion record to go along with it? There's not a – with 40, 40 singles, and I think it's 80 songs total because there's there's one eh, – that's more than 80 songs. There's one one-sided single, and there's a couple of them that have three songs. Um, around about 80 songs. We couldn't fit it all uh, on a record, and I don't even think that we had the uh, the rights and permissions to compile – all of them. Most of them we did. Um, I thought we did a playlist or a digital download. Um, I mean, that was, that was our solution to that problem of yes, obviously reading this book would make you want to listen to the music. Um, the fact that all of these tracks are available on all the major streaming services was kind of our, uh, stopgap solution, not even stopgap, but just our de facto solution of, well, they're not, it's not all hidden behind a paywall. It's not like all of these singles are out of print. You can find this um, if you are so inspired to do so. Okay. 
You interviewed a wide range of artists for this book. Uh, some were legends like Wanda Jackson, and I really love that interview in particular, by the way. Um, while others like Ruby Amanfu and Pokey Lafarge were at the earlier stage of their careers. Did that alter your approach to interviewing them, depending on the artist and their, where they were in their careers? Oh, I think, you know, I think the main thing that, that influenced how I interviewed people was what I knew about the record what I already knew going into it. So if I knew nothing about what that session actually was, you know, I'm, I'm working on the back end at third man to put these singles out and to get people to buy them and promote them. But I wasn't in the studio for any of these. I wasn't there with Jack. So I don't really have, um, if, if it's a record of that nature, I'm, I'm entering into the conversation much more wide eyed. Tell me about this. What was it like? What were your feelings? If I have any shred of knowledge that I can bring in of, oh, yeah, uh, so-and-so really liked the Coke machine in the studio, uh, I can bring that up and let that give that as an entry into tell me about what you thought about the Coke machine. You know, I'm not going to ask all 40 artists what they thought about the Coke machine because probably 38 of them are going to say, I don't give a shit about the Coke machine, you know? <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't think where an artist was – affected how I interviewed them with the lone exception of Stephen Colbert. Um, because that was along with Beck, that was another interview I just had assumed would not happen that he had far better things to do, that he was far too important to, to give me the time of day. Um, also there was on my end, there's a little bit of confusion of, when I'm even requesting the interview, um, this is after Colbert had made the switch from his Comedy Central show to his uh, his network late night show. I The record that Colbert did for Third Man is as the character Stephen Colbert. Um, he has, for all intents and purposes, abandoned that character uh, since the end of that show which I think partially is Comedy Central claims they own that character. There's some weird mumbo jumbo that I'm, I, goes beyond my pay grade. Um, so I don't know. Am I interviewing Stephen Colbert, the character? Am I interviewing Stephen Colbert, the creator of that character? Also, he's the only performer on any of these releases that is totally not a musician. <laughs> This is this is kind of absurd that he's in his involvement and that we dedicated this to him. Uh, absurd in a beautiful way, not in a why did we do it way. Uh, it was a beautiful absurdity. But I'll be damned if that wasn't my favorite interview I did of anyone. There's no slight on any of the ar other artists, but it was so insightful. And he had clearly thought about this whole process of the recording and everything involved. And he is so well-spoken. The minute I finished that interview, I, I, I almost started crying because that felt like for me, and it was one of the later interviews that I didn't get too many after him, uh, a handful. But when that happened, I, I felt a sense of relief because I felt if nothing else happens, if everything falls apart, this interview in my opinion, makes the book. Um, and so I, fe I felt a sense of relief and a weight off my shoulders in, in his generosity and him giving me that time. Was there something specific in your interaction with him that really made you feel that way? What was it about that interview? Well, you know, I, I ran and told Jack the minute I finished the interview, I said, Oh my God, it was so great. And he said, it's, it's pretty great talking to someone that speaks for a living, right? I said, yeah, that's actually a good point. His, he's, he does interviews all the time as the, as conducting them. And he also does them fair enough uh, or frequently enough uh, as the person being interviewed. But for me, the moment really was um, all of his insight on, on the recording and Jack was, was great. And I reminded him of some things that he, uh, he had forgotten about. He had forgot that him and Jack had sang the national anthem, uh, at some event uh, for the celebrating the release of the single. But on a total lark, 
I had just mentioned or brought up the idea of Stephen is a, a huge fan of uh, the band Neutral Milk Hotel, which is kind of like the, the 90s, the biggest 90s cult band that is still people still talk about to this day and sold tons of records. But it's mm-hmm. it's, you know, in the airplane over the sea, people can look it up if they don't know. But um, I always thought that was really interesting hearing him talk about that. He mentions it in his interview with Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Um, so I just, I just simply like, Hey man, how did you find out about neutral milk hotel? Like, I don't know what the connection is where you, did you find out about them early did you find late? You know, how did, and he goes on and tells a beautifully worded paced story that to me, I actually loved more than anything he said about the blue series. Um, because it delved deeper into art and it delved deeper into why we do any of this. And he he made a great point when he was talking about the show being on TV. He said, you've been given this power. You think of this power as like this, this – I'm going to paraphrase here, but it's this, this laser focus you can point on things. And those things can be uh, political injustice. They can be crime. They can be absurdity um, in the modern world. What do you want people to pay attention to? is how he phrased it. And he said, that's sobering. That's not, that comes with a lot of responsibility. Uh, But also there are moments where there is something beautiful and something artistic and something uh, not completely mainstream that you can also uh, point that laser at and you can bring attention to. And that to me, like it just pierced through everything I have. And that's, that's why you put out records. That's why you you go to a record store um, looking for something that's been long forgotten. That's that's a very very simple way to describe the inspiration for for doing anything, at least per, at least personally in my life. Some of your interviews are longer than others. Is this a function of how well you know the artist, or does it just come down to the personalities of the artist? I think it's it's maybe a combination of of how well I know people and what they have to say. Some people didn't have much to say. Um, I feel like my interview with Laura Marling um, was on the shorter side, and it wasn't out of anything other than yeah, you know that was they recorded that song. Uh, the A side was the first take. I don't think they even did a second take. They were just setting up microphones and they were going to hit record and said, shit, I think that's, I think that's done. I don't think we need to do anything. Um, so there wasn't, you also got to consider when you're only talking about one day and some people are talking three, four, five, six years ago, tell me everything about that one day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, memories, like you said, as time passes, they melt away. Um, one group that we that I reached out to who are actually local here, a band called Jeff the Brotherhood. Um, I reached out to them and the one the singer guitar player Jake, he said uh, he said, you know, I don't really have I don't really have anything to say. Like that year was so busy for us. I don't remember what it was like in the studio. We did a lot of we had a lot of stuff going on. We did a lot of shit. Um, I feel like an interview would kind of just I, I wouldn't really know what to say. I wouldn't really have any anecdotes or anything like that. Um, and so there's no, there's no, uh, there's no input. They're one of the artists we don't have any input from. Um, I wanted to take that response and print that as the (laughs) response, uh, in their little section in the, in the book, but Chet, uh, Chet thought that that would maybe seem mean spirited. (laughs) Um, so we didn't, we didn't do that, but, uh, if anyone, if anyone wants to see that they can get, they know, they can figure out how to get a hold of me and I will share the two sentences that, uh, that Jeff, the brotherhood said about, not really remembering their session. So that's great. Uh, did you take a different approach to interviewing the session players who worked on the songs versus the artists? Yeah. Uh, session players, you know, because a lot of, a lot of the session players had um, worked on a wide range of releases that uh, of blue series releases. So you have people that played on five, six, seven different of these releases and they play a different instrument on every one. Um, 
it's it's you've got less space to dedicate to them. Uh, they are usually better for uh, supplying though the the color commentary of oh there was this one thing that happened this crazy moment we had uh, those kind of things it's not you know we don't really get into inspiration or what made you want to do this um, so yeah and and the fact that there's probably in the grand scheme of things there's more session players than artists um, so it's just you know just a matter of uh, tackling it all that was I think session players were almost exclusively written uh, exchange of questions. Some of them I think I did in, in person or, or um, verbally over the phone. Uh, but yeah, session players was kind of just, they all needed their due. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we wanted, I wanted to make sure that they got their credit and they got acknowledged. Um, but it's just a lot harder to, to facilitate and a lot harder to, to really open up in that regard, you know, you get, you know, at, at a certain point it did get the hand did get dealt of, okay, we need to finalize how many pages this is going to be. And we need to make it fit, whether it's too much, whether we think we've got too much or too little, we need to make whatever it is, 240 pages or something work. Um, so that, that becomes a, that becomes a factor too. Was it by design that the session players were mostly, you mostly communicated with them through, written means versus talking to them or did that just happen? Yeah, it, it, it was mostly there. There were a lot more spread out and there's a lot more of them. And, uh, you know, if I, uh, just in, in the sheer, uh, use of my time, I, I just, by design, I had to focus more on the artists. And so once I had a nice chunk of the artists done, I was able to, to divert some of my attention to, all right, let's knock out the session players. And I think we got word from most all of the session players, if not all of them. And we also got them to come in and pose for new portraits um, of themselves on the blue background. So I don't think on any of the other records did we ever have the session players' um, photos. Um, so that was kind of a, a, a interesting way to create new visual imagery for, you know, these largely static established known cover shots, you know? Okay. What were some of your favorite interviews and why? Well, like I said before, the Stephen Colbert interview was, was, yeah, that was, (laughs) the Stephen Colbert interview was great. I mean, he's, he is, he was the, the moment I interviewed him too was like right when his show had taken over the ratings lead over Jimmy Fallon. Um, so it was this kind of high moment. We didn't even talk about it, but I, I kind of felt it in the air that you know there was talk. It seems so long ago now, but there's talk at the time that the Colbert show wasn't doing good and people weren't connecting to it. Um, but wow, you know the the Trump presidency sure changed that. Um, so, so Colbert, um, by far, uh, was just really, really, it felt like a blessing that felt like it tied together so many loose ends. Um, I really loved interviewing, uh, Shaggy Tudo from Insane Clown Posse. Um, just talking to a guy who'd spent a ton of time in Detroit. Um, Detroit's my hometown. I, I take partial responsibility for for the mere idea of insane clown posse recording a blue series single um uh obviously the 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 credit primarily goes to jack as he's the one that put you know his reputation on the line and and even doing that where those guys are so unfairly maligned in, in in both of our estimations do you have any favorite songs in this first volume is there any overlap between your favorite songs and your favorite interviews wow um i find myself you know i love the laura marling single we did but i love that more so because it introduced me to laura marling and i really really love just just this past week i've been listening to her nonstop, 
And I feel so happy for that. I feel if we hadn't done that single, she would just be a name that I would see from time to time that I would never have explored otherwise. Um, gosh, a favorite single. Um, I think it's really cool. We did Courtney Barnett as well, but I prefer her albums to the single we did. Um, shoot. I don't know if I have an answer to that. You know, I've got two kids and I definitely have an answer of which one of those is my favorite, but, uh, (laughs) across the blue series, um, gosh, you know what? I really, I really enjoy and and has held up to this day is we did a single by an artist, uh, named Daniel Pujol. Uh, I think it's just credited to Pujol. Um, but the two songs he did, it's, uh, too safe and black rabbit. The minute those finished recordings came in to the office, they were just instantly familiar and repeatable and quotable and just really, really well done. Um, Daniel did a great interview. He had a great, he had a bunch of side uh, interview stuff about, Hey, okay. So I did the interview and that's all great, but I want to tell you all this other stuff that you can't put in the book. And none of it was, uh, was salacious or damning or anything like that. Uh, it, 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 to, to our world, it was more in, in, in his realm of like, you can never print this, but uh, he, he's really, really smart and he's really, really well-spoken and he understands, uh, he understands culture. So his, he was probably the first person to actually knock out an interview, uh, did it really well. He, he did uh, written like questionnaire style. Um, I think if push come to shove, I could, I could fight those Pujol songs against most anything else uh, we've done on the blue series. Okay. Were there any surprises in the interviews? Did you learn anything about the blue series that you didn't know before? Was it someone, was it the secret sisters said they stole something from Jack? So, <laughs> so I think they said they stole something from yes. the studio. Um, that was a surprise. Um, there was a, I mean, I don't know if that's, if that's good or bad that I wasn't terribly surprised by much else. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I generally had the outline of what I expected these people to say or in, in what, uh, to what degree I, ex- what I would expect them to say. So I, I wasn't terribly surprised uh, on, uh, for better or for worse. Okay. Were there any difficult interviews, any uncooperative or monosyllabic interviewees? I would say the most difficult interviews were the ones that didn't happen uh, because it was, it was not from lack of trying. It was not from uh, anything less than uh, being downright courteous on my end. Um, But no, anyone that, that took the time, it, it worked. It made sense. Um, and I think all of the interviews are, are fair and accurate um, insight into the artist and, and uh, who they are. I don't think anything – everything is really representative. So if you know nothing about, uh, you know, We Are Hex, I think the, the – you know, what We Are Hex said about themselves as a band, that gives you insight. That shows you what it's like, who they are. You're not going to be – um, in the dark about it. Did you significantly edit any of the interviews? Were any of the artists too candid? Um, some of them, the, the Chris Thiele interview was definitely edited. That went on much longer than we had space for. So we tried to keep, we tried to edit it down to what was relevant. Um, like I said, we edited Jack's interview um, somewhat for for just structure in regards to I was just all over the board with him of like what we started talking about and what we ended. And it, it flowed better when we kind of cut and pasted like, Oh no, we should actually start talking about this and then go, you know, ABCD kind of style. Um, Daniel Pujol uh, was, he gave me his answers to his questions. And then he wrote me a follow-up email and said, Hey, here's a bunch of stuff that is not for print. Um, Hmm. And not because it was salacious or everything. I think it was more on on his end of of insight that uh, you know things about you know his band or his band's experience or whatever, which was funny and insightful. And I would have been happy to include that um, if I could have. 
But uh, but no, everyone, you know, everyone's on board. Everyone played the game. They got it. Yeah, and I asked that because I know that a lot of the artists, of course, went into detail about Jack White's studio, his home studio. So just mm-hmm. curious if um, any of that was, you know, if any of that needed to be shortened or cut or if that was... No, you know, I kind of, we kind of left that as we've always kind of done in regards to if people have done sessions there, they're free to say what they want. You know, they're not talking about, you know, Jack's family or his kids or anything like that. Um, One thing I do want to mention, I don't know if we've gotten to to that point or if you're going to get there, but um, the foreword or the intro by David Frick, um, that was the other point in this whole book happening when he sent through his mm-hmm. foreword, um, I had asked pretty early on. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And when we came up with our uh, timeline, it was, it, you know, I asked him pretty early on. And he didn't need to turn it in for like three or four months. Uh, but then we'd gotten sidetracked and we'd gotten uh, distracted. So I got to the point of thinking he's not going to be able to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He can't do it, whatever it is. And checked in with him. He's like, no, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll, you know, you know, I'm still operating on that. And he had like some just basic questions about, he's like, I think I understand it all, but just can confirm a couple, you know, minor points for me. And when he sent that through, that was another moment of like, holy shit, I can't believe this actually <laughs> happened. I've loved his writing since I was, you know, 12 years old reading him in Rolling Stone. Um, and he was the only person I wanted to write the intro. He was the only person I asked to. And, uh, he didn't have to. He is as renowned as a music journalist as I think they come. And that, to me, if I never write anything again, I can still put on my tombstone, David Frick wrote the intro to this guy's book. <laughs> so I would be quite happy for that. That's great. Uh, <laughs> can you talk about some of the other Seven Inch recordings that have happened after this volume? Yeah, so we did – I think there's – we've done three that that have happened subsequently. So there's one with Dwight Yoakam. Mm-hmm. No, Dwight Yoakam's yeah. in there. I'm sorry. Um, there's only one then. Um, it's uh, this band called My Bubba, uh, which is two female singer-songwriters that we had been trying to work with. It took a minute to get them in to record and all that stuff. Um that was a really great one. That was one that I kind of felt like I brought to the table and uh, they're really, really sweet and really, really, they had personally said they had held off on doing their Bob Dylan cover uh, or they do a cover of you're going to make me lonesome when you go. Uh, and they perform it live and it always kind of really seemed to bring down the house. So they brought that and said, Hey, this now feels like the right time to record that cover. Um, they're really, really sweet. They'd spent a lot of time in Nashville. So, um, they kind of knew, uh, they knew the ropes around town or whatever. It wasn't like they were fish out of water. Um, but yeah, I, I should, I should probably go interview them, uh, the, as soon as I get off <laughs> with you. Another important element of this book is the design. It's a visually stunning book. How did you, how did this design come together? Hey man, we, we've got a, we've got a built in, uh, in-house, art team here at third man and Ryan Nishimori, uh, you know, put his nose to the grindstone and just knocked it out. Um, I, I mentioned to him in the, in the thank yous at the end of the book. Um, I say, Ryan, you didn't (laughs) fuck this up. Um, and that's, that's somewhat of an inside joke between us because he would call me into his office and say, Hey, here, I'm working on this. What do you think of this? Show me different designs. And, I'm pretty hands off in regards to the design. I, I'm not going to claim to be the uh, the insight or have uh, have that knowledge. Uh, but most times when I'd leave his office, I would just say, "Hey, man, just don't fuck it up." Uh, and and he didn't. It looks great. I, I'm glad that you brought up the design uh, aspect of it. A lot of people maybe would overlook such a thing, but no, I'm happy with extremely happy with how that turned out and, and just the presentation and holding of it all. It's, uh, it's, it's something I, I'm, i I'm lucky to have been involved with. Well, wonderful. Okay. Um, so we have taken up a lot of your time. I have a final question for you. 
What are you working on now? Okay. Oh, wow. Um, I'm constantly working on finding crazy old recordings from the past and trying to see if they make any sense in the future. Um, so I have a pile of tapes that turned up in a farmhouse in Michigan that I'm going to have to have a meeting with a manager next week about. Um, I'm trying to work on, I'm constantly threatening to write a book about the white stripes and I've got a little bit of, I've got another paternity leave coming. So I'm, I'm tempted to just use that time to write another book. Um, I, I feel like my wife feels like I need to learn how to write a book without getting her pregnant. Um, so some, something's got to give. Um, but yeah, just, uh, you know, I working here at third man, it's like, I get to come to the circus every day. Um, this is a dream job. My wife, my wife asked me, she's like, is there any way this could more be your dream job? I said, if I just got paid to just live and not do anything out, like, just like, Hey, I decided uh, I want to, race goat carts today and I'm going to get paid for it. That's, I mean, that's not even a job at that point. Uh, so I basically no, there is no way I could have a more dream job than this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. <laughs>